Hey everyone, it's James with Families Who Kill. Thanks for joining us for the second of our two bonus episodes. Last week we took a closer look at the life of Detective Joe Fanciulli and his homicide playbook. If only Fanciulli had been around to solve the gruesome cases we're going to tell you about now. This episode is dedicated to exploring a series of serial killings perpetrated by other families who, like the McCrary's, left a horrifying trail of torture and carnage in their wake. To tell us about these murderous clans, we welcome our experts, Anya and Kevin, from the Murder Sheet Podcast, as they walk us through their research. Why does this topic interest you guys so much? I think for us, just the idea of a family going around murdering people is just sort of fascinating from a psychological perspective. Like, what could go wrong to to a cause that basically a family unit that's so destructive that it's not only harming its own members, but is actually sort of spilling that sort of evil out into the world. Why don't we first have a look at the Gonzalez sisters who killed 91 people in central Mexico between 1945 and 1964. Tell us about them. Absolutely. So the Gonzalez sisters are a veritable sisterhood of death, essentially. They're a little bit interesting for me um, as a lady because most of the families we're going to talk about are very much, you know, either male dominated or consist of brothers. Um, This is sort of a bit of a opposite situation where it's all sisters, four sisters, uh, the Gonzalez sisters. The two ones that we really want to talk about are Delfina de Jesus Gonzalez and Maria de Jesus Gonzalez. Maria and Delfina are the ringleaders of this crime family. The other two sisters, they're not, they're not as important. And I think they died by the time these crimes were uncovered. So I have three sisters, you know, and like, you know, everyone's aware of the dynamic, right? So they're like, okay, this one's the bossy one. This one's the one who's into whatever. This one's going to kill a bunch of people. So I really do think, I do think that everybody in this family was aware of what was going on because it was their family business, literally. And the Gonzalez sisters actually are listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as being the world's most prolific murder partnership. They're credited with killing at least 90 people. Like you want women to break glass ceilings, but like not that one. You don't want that one to be broken. Let's just leave that one unbroken, ladies. Not good. So basically, uh, mostly led by Delfina and Maria, the Gonzalez sisters started a um, sex work business in Mexico. Now, context, I think, is important. In Mexico, sex work was actually totally legal at this point, as long as the sex workers were there by their own volition. Kind of impressive to learn that Mexico was this progressive at this point in history, because we're, we're talking about the early 20th century. Um, But Delfina and Maria basically set things up so that they would lure unsuspecting young women into their prostitution arrangement by promising them like a really good job, uh, a nice salary as a maid in Mexico City. Uh, Once they sort of got a young girl in their power, they would uh, basically trick them into getting off a bus or going to a certain place at a certain time, and they would be basically held against their will and forced to be sex workers. Not what they signed up for at all. And when a young woman was um, either sick or injured or unwilling to continue to do this, they would get rid of them. They would murder these women. They would also murder any babies that they had over the course of this, uh, you know, these rapes that they endured. And then the third group of people that they murdered were uh, wealthy Johns who 
come in sporting some cash, you know, some fancy clothes, and they would be a target because they could rob them and bury them. And, you know, these men were doing something illicit, so they probably wouldn't tell anyone where they were going. So it was sort of like a, a perfect crime in that sense. Wow. How are they keeping this secret from the community and police? All these people missing? Well, here's the interesting thing. People in the community did not trust these women. The reason why they were getting away with it, because they were smart enough to bribe people in power. Uh, there were a number of uh, people who also had a fall when these women were exposed. Uh, and they were basically kind of protecting them where it's like, okay, we're not going to look, we're going to look the other way when people are disappearing. We're going to look the other way when mothers come into our office crying because they can't find their daughters. You know, we don't see anything going on at that ranch, basically. I think really sunk the Gonzalez sisters is that in December 1963, things start falling apart because of the Hernandez family. So uh, Teresa Hernandez was a mother of a 16 year old daughter named Maria. And uh, this Maria Hernandez goes missing, you know, after she was offered a maid job by a kind of a strange woman in a park. So uh, basically Teresa Hernandez brought this to the police and they actually started looking into it. And I think that's pretty much because this was a group of police in a different area of Mexico. So they weren't being bribed. So they were like, okay, we're actually going to look into this. What happened to your daughter? Um, and basically the thread unraveled from there. And, and uh, these police found, um, fortunately found Maria alive uh, before, you know, she was harmed or, or killed, um, just locked up on a property owned by the Gonzalez sisters with a bunch of other girls who were saying we were here against our will. Like, we want to get out of here, please. And um, so, I mean, it's kind of interesting that sort of a, a young woman and her mother who was determined to find her were sort of the people who ended up really bringing these sisters down. And what motivated the sisters to do all this? Kill so many. Was it for money? All the exploitation? It's one of those things where you have to wonder because these women were not flaunting their wealth. These women, they weren't living like a luxurious lifestyle where you could almost see there being a motive of like, you're going to get money by doing these horrible things and spend it on yourself. So the psychology sort of seems incredibly twisted. And, you know, the, the level of control where you're saying, if you're not going to go along with our um, kidnapping, rape, extortion scheme, then we're going to kill you. I mean, is like, it's chilling. It's really chilling. You have to wonder what was going through these women's minds. And I mean, I can tell you that a lot of people in Mexico at the time were wondering that and they were furious. They had to really like lock down the court because otherwise there might've been some sort of lynch mob because people were just furious about this. What do we know about their trial? They told all sorts of horror stories in court. It was one that really struck, stuck in my mind when one of the victims said she remembered two sisters being held by the Gonzalez sisters. And one of them was very sick and in a terrible condition physically, which means that she had little of any value as a sex worker at that mm -hmm. point. And so her sister who was in better health and who wanted to curry favor with the Gonzalez sisters, uh, she was given a hammer. And the Gonzalez sisters provoked a fight between the two sisters and the stronger sister ended up hammering the weaker sister to death just to curry favor with the Gonzalez sisters. So you can understand why the people in Mexico were really upset and furious with these uh, monstrous women. 
and here's the thing i'm going to say this i mean they obviously were very clever they obviously were you know had an understanding of like psychology where you're provoking fights and you're sort of manipulating your victims against one another and also manipulating the system where you're i have the police in my pocket i have the military in my pocket no one can touch me so there's like a cleverness to this that's also chilling it was actually a I think out of all of the crimes that we're going to talk about today, this was probably the most, the best organized one. It's it's not a situation where, you know, typically when you're reading about a woman serial killer, you're reading about a nurse who's injecting patients or somebody killing uh, their own children or somebody who is uh, going after elderly people that they're sort of allowing into their boarding house who never make it out. Those are sort of the prototypical female serial killers. These women are actually they've set up a business apparatus where they're luring in victims like flies to a Venus flytrap and sort of having them in their power. And I think what's interesting, I don't think the primary goal here was to kill people necessarily. The killing was a byproduct of like, you are no longer useful to us. So now we will dispose of you. It's so clinical. It's so like horrifying because it's, it's not like these women were, I mean, I can't speak to whether they were mentally ill, but it's not like they were out of control and didn't know what was going on. It was just very much about self-preservation at a certain point, I think. Let's talk about their victims for a little bit. Dig a bit deeper. So the Gonzalez sisters had a range of victims. Uh, Out of the 90 people they killed, some were Johns who were wealthy and they wanted to rob. Some were sex workers who were no longer useful to them because they were either injured or sick or too old or refused to go on in that life. And others were babies that some of these sex workers had while they were being held and and raped. And they were basically just summarily disposed of, even if they were born alive, unfortunately. Uh, it, it's it's the maternal instinct and it's the idea that you're kidnapping these teenagers and putting them through the ordeal of getting pregnant and giving birth and then you're just killing their babies while they're there. I mean, and burying them on your property. I don't think these women saw their victims as fully people like them. I think they just said these women are almost like chattel or they're like, uh, you know, products that were kind of having processed through our business and, you know, whatever happens to them sort of doesn't really matter to us. It's not our problem. And it's just like, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really horrific. Sometimes they would take women who got pregnant uh, to abortionists. And in some cases, women would die because these were not properly uh, done abortions. And and it just, everything, every action they took just was towards preserving their uh, illegal business, which is even more baffling when you do consider that Mexico had legalized prostitution at this point. Just open a legitimate brothel and treat your workers well. I mean, there's an option here. Um, But they, I guess they saw a profit in in sort of having these mega ranches and multiple properties with lots of women working from them that they didn't really have to pay at all. How did it all unravel for the Gonzalez sisters? Really... The, the family we can credit with taking down this other family of, of sort of monsters is the Hernandez family. And so 16-year-old Maria Hernandez uh, leaves home, heads off on a bus telling her mother, I've got a great new job as a maid. Uh, I, our family needs support. So I'm going to go do my part in the family to get money. 
And um, she never writes her mom back. She never says, hey, I'm set up. Things are good. She never starts sending her paychecks. So uh, Teresa, her mother, knows something's wrong, goes to the police, blows the whistle on this saying, um, allegedly, my daughter was talking to a woman named Senora Gomez at the park. That's where she heard about this maid job. That's where that's where you need to look, basically. So police must have been sort of aware that something was going on here because they had a feeling about who Senora Gomez was. They thought that this was the alias of a woman named Josefina Gutierrez. Uh, she was suspected of basically tricking women into going to work in brothels. And so they track her down and she reveals that she um, uh, was sold to the Gonzalez sisters then. It's like sort of this human trafficking ring, essentially. Human trafficking gets a lot of buzzwords and, and political now, but basically in this case, this is pretty standard human trafficking setup. You're basically being tricked into sex work and then uh, coerced into it uh, once, once you can't basically run away. So um, what is most chilling, I think, about them finding this Gutierrez woman, though, is that she had Maria's watch on her when the police came for her. So imagine that she had this, uh, they had Maria's initials and everything. They say like, that's my daughter's watch. So they're probably suspecting the worst about what happened to their daughter. And I mean, just horrific, horrific possibilities. Um, so basically police contact the authorities in Lyon. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, that was the capital of the uh, Guanajuato state. But uh, basically, uh, in the police contacted the authorities in Lyon, the capital of the Guanajuato state. That's where one of the brothels was. And they find the Gonzalez sisters' brothel. And I mean, you have to imagine, this thing is behind a barbed wire fence. They're armed guards. It looks like a prison. It doesn't look like a brothel. It looks like a prison camp. And that's essentially what it was for these sex workers trapped inside. And um, they find a woman named Lucila Martinez. She's only 28. Uh, turns out she was kidnapped at 17 and forced to work in this brothel. When she aged out, she ended up being put in charge. But she's a victim too. I mean, she was basically brainwashed by these women to, it's like, it's, it's dystopian. It's so, it's awful. Um, but basically, uh, they, they break down a door, they find in this locked room, uh, 13 girls, they're all malnourished, they're all super skinny, they're not being taken care of. Fortunately, one of them was Maria Hernandez, so she was rescued as a result of her, her mom's efforts to find her. So that's a little bit of a happy ending, but a lot of women didn't get their happy ending. A lot of people's lives were destroyed by this operation, around 90 of them were murdered and had their bodies discovered, you know, years later. They were still finding people in 2000. I, they, they were very much about self-preservation. I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, I think Kevin and I were talking about this. They were only sentenced to what? 40 years. 40 years. You know, really, the laws aren't written for cases like this because no one really imagines cases like this happening. Yeah, so far beyond the pale. And uh, Maria, uh, uh, Maria... Gonzalez, uh, one of the sort of instigators of this, was eventually, I believe, let out of prison, right? And yeah, she was let out of prison and uh, supposedly uh, even married. 
and then kind of disappeared in the midst of history. Delfina wasn't so lucky. She was uh, killed in kind of a bizarre accident at prison when a guard working at, at a level over her cell, you know, accidentally dropped a big piece of concrete on her head. Oops. Yeah, it's like everyone's as thick as thieves until the sh- you know they get caught, and then you know blood is not necessarily thicker than water. You know, maybe maybe it was her idea, maybe it was his idea, maybe you know. And I, I mean, a couple of the families we're going to talk about today uh, definitely turned on one another pretty quickly. All right, that was an insane story. Shifting gears, let's talk about the Briley brothers, another heinous group of family members doing unthinkable things. Who were they? Sure, the Brileys were uh, Linwood Briley, James Briley, and Anthony Briley. And also in their gang was a guy named Duncan Eric Meekins, who was just kind of a buddy of theirs. They grew up in uh, the Richmond, Virginia area, and they really went on their spree in the 1970s. Uh, The prosecutor in the case said that they were incredibly inhumanly mean, just killing machines. And in a way, I think the Brileys were very happy to give that kind of reputation because a friend of theirs told police that the whole reason the Brileys went on this spree and started victimizing and terrorizing and killing people was they wanted to get a reputation as violent people because it was their aspiration to become professional hitmen. Yeah, we've all heard of cases like this, I think, in terms of like tough guys. I want to be a badass. I'm going to just start taking it out on everybody else in society. Yeah. Alpha male gone wild. Yeah. The father in this case supposedly was so scared of them that he kept his door locked at night, his bedroom door locked. So yeah, smart man. Apparently the parents were considered relatively nice people in the neighborhood. There was no like, you know, like outward necessarily like tough guy. We're going to kick everyone's butt sort of thing going on with the parents at least. I think that if you accidentally somehow raised three serial killers, you did something very wrong, whatever that may be. And that might, it doesn't necessarily have to be that they were too hard on them or that they were like abusive physically, but there might, you know, you could talk about maybe too lenient, right? Where you're letting them get away with stuff and not being a parent and sort of reining them in and saying, here's right from wrong. These guys had pets like tarantulas, piranhas, and boa constrictors. And that certainly speaks to an appetite and a desire to witness violence. And now we don't want to say I'm, like we're just trashing everybody who has a pet tarantula. But I think what was creepy about this, didn't they like feed small animals to these pets too? I think you have to get yeah, one of these pets. Yeah, but like in a creepy way. <laughs> the killing in the case of these brothers started really early and it kind of showed their lack of appreciation for the essential worth or humanity of other people. Linwood was 16. He actually shot and killed his 57-year-old neighbor as she was hanging laundry. And he said, oh, it didn't really matter because she was 57 and she had a heart condition, so she probably didn't have long to live anyway. The, the bullet wasn't discovered until uh, the embalming process at the funeral home. I'll say this. I mean, I think this sort of illustrates, because they targeted a woman with an underlying heart condition and they knew that, these brothers were really good at identifying victims who were either through circumstances or through who they were uh, vulnerable in some way. So they're going to go after the person who's alone. They're going to go after the person who is older and who can't fight back. Or they're going to go after a couple with kids where they're going to be you know, worried about their child in the whole thing so they can like control people. So I think it shows a craftiness on uh, Linwood's part where 
that would actually follow them throughout their later crime spree. And it's sort of like, what is to come, basically? Totally random. There was one case they saw a teenage boy just kind of standing near their car. And they thought, well, he might be trying to steal our car. So let's go basically beat him to death. When he, they started beating him and attacking him. And when he cried out for help, one of them dropped a concrete block on the poor guy's head and killed him. When it, they decided basically to kill the next person that came out of a nightclub. And the, the person who drew the short straw happened to be a relatively well-known DJ in the area. And they kidnap him, force him into the trunk of his own car, uh, drive him down to the uh, James River, uh, kill him, take his jewelry. And in fact, when they were arrested, uh, the, one of the brothers was wearing a ring taken from that man. You don't commit these crimes if you want to continue getting away with it. This is, I mean, it's outrageous, the level of violence, you know, killing their own friends, right? I mean, like, that's going to be traced back to you. I mean, yeah. Wasn't it uh, 71 to 78? 79. 79, okay. But there was a long hiatus. Long hiatus uh, to, to a certain degree. Like, there was one case in 71, and then bulk of everything was in, started in March 79, and uh, kind of came to an end in October 79. So the, the Briley brothers and their friend Duncan Meekins uh, over a span of a few months in the fall of 1979 terrorized the city of Richmond, killing a dozen people in violent and bloody ways. The Briley brothers also were almost the MacGyver of killers. They would kill people with whatever they could find on hand, be it a gun, a knife, scissors, or a cinder block. I... I and my, my impression is they would just, when the, the mood struck them, they would just take whatever was on hand. These, these were not people who put a lot of preparation into what they did. In the case of that DJ, it was basically they decided we're going to kill someone tonight. It didn't even matter who it was. In other cases, like the teenager by his car, it was they saw him, they thought he was threatening their car, so they decided to take action. In another case, their last uh, murder was uh, they were out on a street and someone who knew them, who was in their, his own home, saw them and got a little bit uncomfortable and he locked his door. And the brothers heard the sound of the door lock and that pissed them off. And mm -hmm. so they decided to go after him. And so they went and knocked on his door and the poor guy was so scared. If I don't open up the door, I'm just going to piss them off. I'm just going to make them angry at me. Who knows where they're due? So here he let them in and with horrible results. I mean, I, I just want to add that that's not even how you become a hitman. You don't do become a hitman by becoming a high profile killer who everyone's looking for. Right. You know, people <laughs> want to hire a hitman who's going to be incognito and discreet. And so they obviously had a huge misunderstanding about like what they were even trying to do. But it just shows like a lack of planning or thoughtfulness about anything. I think they just wanted to be feared. I think they liked being feared to a, to a large degree. These people are did not really put a lot of thought into what they did at this stage in their life. They just acted by instinct. We're getting ahead of ourselves here, but when they were in prison, they broke out of prison. They put a lot of thought into that, a lot more thought into the prison break itself than in any of the crimes they committed. The last people they killed were, uh, I mentioned, they somebody clocked his door when he saw them and that, mm. that angered them. So they went and got into his house they, it was a man, his common-law wife, who happened to be pregnant, and a, a child. And they killed those people. They raped the woman. They killed the child. They're spotted leaving the scene of this crime. And 
witnesses identified them pretty conclusively. And so because of that, after that, it wasn't that difficult for the police to round them up, which they did. And then their friend, uh, Meekins, very quickly made a deal saying, I'll tell you everything that happened as long as you don't give me the death penalty. And uh, the police took that deal. A snitch. Although I will note one thing in their first um, attack, uh, part of the spree, where unfortunately in this case, they did not kill the couple involved. Uh, basically, they, they tied up an elderly couple and set the house on fire, leaving them to burn alive. Duncan Meekins apparently tied the couple somewhat loosely so that the husband was able to escape. Not clear to me if that was an accident, if he was nervous, or if he was truly maybe hoping that they would get out of it. But, you know, there's sort of signs like that, that maybe Meekins was a little bit less of a true believer um, than the brothers were necessarily. Maybe a tiny bit of humanity in this horrible story. Yes, but if you're not concerned about hurting people, it seems like it seems like he might have been a little bit less into this whole crime spree than than everybody else. But then again, I mean, he, given what the Briley's were capable of, you can kind of understand if he was, you know, pretty scared of them. So Linwood and James both got sentenced to death. And so because of this, they were sent to the same prison. And so they were still together and they were able to hatch an escape plan. And this plan was like something out of a movie. They were eavesdropping on the guards in order to get an idea of what the schedules were, which guards were stationed where at which time. And they rounded up some other death row inmates to participate in this break with them. Uh, They made their own uh, knives and hid them in the cracks of the walls of their cells and they bided their time. And then on the morning of the day, they decided this would be the day we break out. The the brothers actually shaved off their beards, so it would be harder for people on the outside to identify them. These kids were not dumb in their own way. They were masterminds. And then what happened basically was uh, one of their associates in this scheme overpowered a guard and using him as a hostage, they were able to take other guards captive and they had one of these guards contact uh, outside authorities and say, there's a bomb here at the prison. You need to send a special van over here so we can uh, evacuate the bomb and get rid of it. So people fell for it. The special van came in. Uh, All these death row inmates wearing special uh, outfits to protect them from the bomb. Also means nobody could see what they looked like. They all ran into this van and drove off to freedom. They put that much thought into anything. They could have been successful in other fields. It shows a level of understanding of how, you know, how the guards and how the prison system will react to a crisis that is pretty astounding. Although they weren't the only ones who participated in that. I mean, and and they were actually during the, you know, taking of hostages, Linwood wanted to rape one of the nurses who was one of the hostages They wanted to kill some of the guards and the other inmates involved in the escape had to be like, no, (laughs) like, stop. Like, we're we're not, we're focused on escaping. We want your energy, but we don't want your level of disorganization was able to kind of keep them focused. All of six people escaped that way. Uh, And then after they escaped, they broke off into three groups of two. The Briley brothers were able to stay on the loose for several weeks. The other two pairs were captured pretty quickly. Because uh, the thing is, in some ways, it's easier to escape than it is to remain free because you need to have money and such. Like one of the other groups ran out of money, so they decided, let's rob a store. And robbing a store, they got caught. 
And another thing to keep in mind, once you are out, what do you do? You resume any of your old habits or hang out with any of your old friends or family, you're going to get caught. And the Briley brothers did make that mistake. They went to Philadelphia where they had an uncle. Their uncle got them a job working at a garage. And after a few weeks, the FBI was able, was able to figure this out and uh, recapture them. Well, now I'm going to see the Briley brothers in my nightmare. So thanks for that. We have one final family who killed to talk about. In 1978, Roger Stafford, with his wife and brother, went on a murderous spree. Can you walk us through exactly what happened? Certainly. And this is one that really bothers me, especially the crime that first earned them some notoriety. For some reason, this one in particular is very upsetting to me. So on June 22nd, 1978, Air Force Technical Sergeant Melvin Lorenz, his wife, Linda Lorenz, and their 12-year-old son, Richard, are driving from their home in San Antonio, Texas, all the way up to Jamestown, North Dakota, in order to attend a family funeral. They're driving in a blue pickup truck that has a white camper shell. They don't have a lot of money, so they're not gonna be staying at fancy hotels. And so around 3 a.m., they're going through Oklahoma when Melvin notices by the side of the road a car with its hood up and a woman is standing beside it obviously in some sort of distress. And I, I wonder sometimes what he was thinking. Maybe he wanted to make a good example for his little boy to teach him that it's a good idea to help people in need. In this case, that was a horrible mistake to make. So he pulls up right behind this car and he gets out and he goes and he offers help to this woman. And as soon as he approaches the front of the car, two men jump out from behind the car where they were hidden. And it turns out the woman was Verna Stafford. One of the men is her husband, Roger Dale Stafford. And the other man is Roger's brother, Harold. And they pull a gun on him and say they want his money, all of it. And he says, I can't give you all of my money. We need the money in order to make this trip to this funeral. And Stafford does not like that at all. And so he shoots uh, Melvin Lawrence dead. And in the car, his wife has witnessed this. And in fear and rage and maybe some kind of hope, she hops out of the car and she races to her fallen husband to try to help him. And so then the Staffords shoot and kill her as well. And at that point in the silence on this dark, empty road, they hear the faint sound of crying. And it is the little boy in the Lorenz car who has just seen both his parents killed in front of him. And so Roger Dale Stafford goes to the truck and he sticks his gun through the window and he shoots this child. And unfortunately, we don't know if the child was killed at once or if he was still alive for a while. But what we do know is that the Staffords got into this vehicle with this child who was possibly dead, possibly still living, uh, but dying. 
and they drive about a mile and then they toss his body on the side of the road like so much garbage. And he is found there a few days later, lying in the weeds, wearing a now bloody t-shirt that says, old Fords never die, they just go faster. So the Staffords on July 16th, 1978, they go to a steakhouse called the Sirloin Stockade. They hang out there until closing time and then they make their move. There's six employees there. They pull a gun on the employees and indicate that they're going to rob the place. And at this point, again, uh, according to Verna, one of the managers got upset with this whole thing and he was telling Roger Stafford, uh, I don't understand why some people can't work for their money instead of just taking it from others. And so this supposedly, again, triggers Stafford. And so he rounds this group up of six people and he takes them to the freezer and he starts shooting. And he also uh, yells at his brother, says, Harold, you're a coward. You need to pull the trigger too. So then Harold takes a few shots. And then again, according to Verna, so who knows how accurate this is, Verna says that Stafford forces a gun into her hand and forces her to fire and take a shot too. She would be a part of the crime. Then after they shoot these people, six of them, they, they go out into the, the front part of the restaurant and they're trying to gather the money to rob the place. And then at this point, uh, the boyfriend of one of the victims enters the restaurant to pick her up. And he notices the restaurant seems empty and quiet. And so he kind of gets a bad feeling. And then he does something very smart. He goes out to his car uh, this is the 70s, so we had a CB radio. And not only is it a, a regular CB radio, it has a loudspeaker attached to it. Using the loudspeaker, he broadcasts the message, this is the police, we have the place surrounded. And the Staffords, still inside the restaurant, they hear this, they freak out, and they rush out the back door and speed away. And they speed away so quickly and so scared they actually end up rear-ending another driver. And that driver uh, later on is able to describe them and place them definitively at the scene of the Sirloin Stockade. It's basically over at that point. So anyway, after they get these descriptions, uh, they know what the killers look like, but they don't have their names. And it's actually kind of bizarre how they first get the names. They release the sketches to the public in early January. And Roger Dale Stafford sees the sketches and he gets very drunk. And then he, he himself calls in the tip line and says, well, those sketches look like Verna Stafford and Harold Stafford. And so suddenly the police know exactly who they're looking for because of Stafford's drunken phone call. Everyone's made phone calls they regret, but this is pretty bad. It <laughs> makes you sad because it makes me angry because it's like this guy was such a dumbass and like he was still able to do so much harm on all these different people and it's like he's no criminal mastermind we have this perception in true crime sometimes where it's like everybody's this Hannibal Lecter type and it's like if you are a brutal person with a gun and you don't really care about human life you could do a lot of damage you don't have to be a genius you don't care about ruining your own life and hurting your family and people who loved you and and you know becoming a monster basically 
So there you have it. Three heinous stories of families who kill. I want to thank Anya and Kevin for all their meticulous research and excellent storytelling. And thank you for listening. This concludes season one of Families Who Kill the Donut Shop Murders. We appreciate your support.